0: Repent.
1: I will not repent.
0: Boo cha cha here. Who do we have with us today? Jim Merz. Jim And Jeff. Present. Jeff present. Good good deal. Uh, gentlemen, this is the unrepentant list, men. Because I have included you purposefully to uh, talk about this particular subject. And I will get to why I wanted to do this subject in just a second, but the unrepentant Subject of this top 10 list is top 10 sci-fi or fantasy novels or series to be adapted to television or film. Now, uh, having said that, what what prompted me on this one is I have been clamoring for years, years, ever since I first read Arthur C. Clarke's Childhood's End I have wanted to see this in movie form, and so the other day I'm watching some random show on the Sci-Fi Channel, which is r- rare for me because I really don't haven't been liking the offerings on the Sci-Fi Channel in the last several years. But uh, I was, you know, given given something a world just to see how it was, and they had an advertisement for these shows coming out in the fall, and I saw that one of the, the titles up on the screen was Childhood's End. So I had to do a little bit of uh, investigating on this. And in fact, Childhood End is becoming a sci-fi series this fall. So I'm I'm a little apprehensive because sci-fi usually does shit. But I also know that the 12 Monkey series has actually gotten pretty popular. Uh, I've only watched like, the first episode of that particular series and I liked it it was alright so I'm just hoping that they do right by this book that was for me a very affecting novel that I had read back when I was in college
2: anyway yeah since the Farscape and Stargate days I haven't been too impressed
0: well yeah ever since BSG went off is pretty much the line of demarcation for me where I think uh, they've definitely reduced in quality ever since they even BSG Battlestar Galactica sir
2: Oh, But then, yes, no, it's, it's good.
0: Well, no, because the uninitiated might not know that. So, thank you for making me clarify that.
1: I but don't anyway. like when they changed it from sci fi to cfi. fi. Like, oh, I do not understand why God. that was necessary. Yeah.
2: That was right about the it's end. Like, yeah, that's funny. You're you, pandering to morons. You, no, it was because
0: so they can trademark it. They can't trademark SCI-5. Oh, is that all it is? All
1: right. It's I, all I is. They're trying to be edgy, so they're using, like, those letters at the end. No, of the alphabet. It's, it's all the about alphabet. branding. You make
0: your and. edgy. Making money off of the name, whatever. Uh, Anyway, so guys, I'll cut them some slack. Let Let's go ahead and start this off. You each were to choose three. You probably might. You're probably holding on to one for honorable mention. Let's save the honorable mention. We'll each do one honorable mention right before we do the uh, number our number ones or whatever. So. All right. Jimmers, is you? What would be your number three?
2: I prepared six, just in case. All right, well, oh. we're doing three, Jeffrey.
0: God, damn it! Yeah, he's
1: trying to make us run over again. All, All right, right, I have a friend who's been really excited over um, the adaptation of Arthur C. Clarke's Childhood's End on Sci-Fi, and so I was thinking about this too because I'm a big fan of the 2001 series of novels. Fuck yeah, and so there's a 2001, the Kubrick one. And then there's the 2010, which is really weird, because if you've ever seen, have you guys seen 2010?
0: I own it. I actually, yeah, it's one of the, the earliest sci-fi movies I ever watched in the theater, and I was pretty young when I watched it. I think it came out, what, 85?
2: Okay. All right. That's the one where they actually make the binary star system, right? Uh, Yeah, that's the one. Yeah,
1: Jupiter turns into a, yep. a star at the end. Yeah. Um, it's weird because, like, 2001 is really abstruse and nebulous, and then 2010 is the exact opposite as a film. It's right. really specific and technical and, and hard sci fi. Um, but, uh, I'd be curious to see the rest of the series. 2061, I don't think, like, nothing's going to be. Yeah. There's, there's 2061, Odyssey 3, great name. And then there's 3001, Final, the Final Odyssey. Odyssey, great name. Um, and uh i liked both of them as novels as far as as part of an awesome series i don't think they would be that great as as movies but i would pay my money right now tonight if they were in the theater to see them because i want to see the vision manifest itself i want to see it come to fruition and um like even 2010 i'm like yeah this isn't 2001 but I, I still sit there and it, it's wildly entertaining for me because I feel like I'm getting to, to see the rest of this universe in a way. But it, yeah. it's funny because like even Kubrick with 2010, I, I don't know the exact quote, but it was to the effect of like, I made my movie and that director made his movie. Like It was basically like, I have nothing to do with this, but it's fine. Do whatever you want. Which is funny because right. um, Spielberg said the same thing about Jurassic Park 3. I think whenever yeah. anyone yeah. makes... You know you're making somebody's making a shitty movie. And you made the first really good one. That's what you say. Well, I made my movie. He's making it. So yeah. um, even though they're not going to be great, nothing's ever going to be 2001, I would love to see a 2061 and a 3001.
2: Uh, I- I'm with you there. Okay, Jeffrey, next. All right, so my number three then is um, – I know they've already tried to do it, but I think they missed the mark. Dresden Files.
0: Oh uh, yeah, that that was my, one of my stipulations was to be adapted or asterisk properly adapted. Go Jeff, Ad- go.
2: I think your word was adequately. Yes, yes. The the TV show was just very pale imitation. I liked the, the show, yeah, it's just compared to the books. Well, so did I until I read the books. Um, my wife says the like same thing. 15 of them now. There's 15 of them. Yeah. Now. So, I don't know if <laughs> I don't think they could make 15 movies. Uh,
0: uh, okay, so uh, anything else you want to say about the uh, Dresden Files
2: then? It's just, it's a fun kind of uh, hidden society of magic users type book. Yeah. Uh, urban fiction. Yeah, urban fantasy. The first few books are okay, but then uh, he even admits, the uh, Jim Butcher, the writer, even admits uh, around book three when he starts introducing new characters regularly. Grave peril. Uh, the series really starts... Yeah, the the real the series really starts to take off. Yeah,
0: uh, I'm. I did like like my introduction to Dresden was in fact the show, which prompted me to go pick up a book, and I sort of stalled out at book two. I haven't gone further yet, but I'm told by you and I'm told by my wife that yeah, you're right. The the books get progressively better, uh, st- especially starting off at like book three or whatever. So I just, I just need to get there. I just need to get there. So for my That's- choice number three Uh, I'm going to go with and this is the same thing as what Jeff just mentioned this is the adequately adapted about five years ago or ten years ago whatever the hell it's been uh, Philip Pullman's The Golden Compass was adapted into a movie starring Daniel Craig Nicole Kidman and and some other people did either of you guys check out that film? no I saw it you saw it? what would you think? it was a little weak it was a little weak have you read the books? No. So, for me, I had read those books, you know, probably 10 years before that. And I adore those books. In fact, I think when my daughter was born, my my older daughter was born, I went out and bought the trilogy, you know, like in a treasury set, just so like, oh, when when she's older and she can understand this, I'm going to read these books to her because they meant so much to me. And so when this book came out, it was just widely panned. And, of course, there was a lot of uh, controversy over the subject matter of the books which I'll talk about in a second but the uh, overall consensus on the golden Compass is it just kind of sucked and wasn't very good so I've actually I've actually never watched the film adaptation of the Golden Compass but because it did so poorly it the series just stalled out and they weren't going to adapt the amber spyglass um, or the subtle knife. Into movies, either. So, what I would like to see then, I would love to see it as either a television series or uh, a rebooted film series, and it probably would be better suited for a TV series, and this is why. Some of the controversy surrounding the movie when it first came out was like, yes, this is a children's story but it isn't really a children's story because the crowning focal point of this film is very Nietzschean in its philosophy, and that is to say, it's about killing God. Oh, that's that's my pregnant
2: Whoa. pause. Heads. Yeah. Heads explode. Yeah, yeah, I was waiting. I was. They're like, listening you're to not me. supposed to indoctrinate <laughs> the young. That's our spiel. Uh, and
0: Philip Pullman is a, an atheist, and of course he was definitely meaning to butt some heads and things like that. But it's such a wonderful story in its portrayal of the innocence of childhood and dealing with identity and religion. And I think for many of us, especially those in in that kind of background, that, to a T, was my childhood as well. I was trying to deal with my own identity and my own religion and sort of came to a lot of the same conclusions that Lyra, the main character in the series, comes to and some of the ideas philosophically presented are uh, very very lofty and above what a child or a young adult reader would uh, understand so if you have not read those novels I absolutely recommend it anyway Philip Pullman's the, the whole series is called His
2: Dark Materials well speaking of you know children and religion you know we had a friend who was absolutely terrified that his father was going to go to hell Because he wasn't a different religion than he was. He was a different denomination than him and his mother.
0: Oh, are we talking about our farmer friend?
2: Yes, we are. (laughs) I I
0: sort of remember those conversations, but whatever. (laughs) Anyway, no, it's a great series. And you know how uh, J.K. Rowling is to Latin. Philip Pullman is to Greek. Uh, You know, Rowling does a lot of weird things with the Latin language and... Uh, Philip Pullman does a lot of, a lot with classical Greek that I appreciated mm, as cool. well. So it's it's a very intellectual set of books. Gemmers, go for your number two.
1: Next, the next one that I selected on my list is Kurt Vonnegut's *Cat's Cradle*. And I like. Have you guys read this book?
0: I've read an excerpt no, out of I've it, but that's it.
1: All right, I stumbled across it in high school, and it's it's a good Vonnegut book. It's about this guy who um, he calls himself Jonah, even though that's not his name. And he's just curious about, uh, uh, like, weapons of mass destruction and the end of the world, and he's writing a book about um, Hiroshima, and uh, he's talking to one of the people who built the the nuclear weapon, and it was like, you know, like, what was going on on the day that the bomb went off at Hiroshima? And it turns out the designer of the bomb was playing Cat's Cradle with his son. And it freaked the son out because the father never, ever played with the son. Like, the only time the father sat down to give the child any attention was the day that he was killing, indirectly, tens of thousands of people. And um, it goes on, and they they basically discover that there's a super weapon that's been developed by the scientists kind of accidentally, and it's called Ice 9. Does this ring a bell now? It does, does it ring a you? bell. I feel, like, I feel like this is kind of like a cultural thing. Like, people talk about Ice 9... But basically, it's a formulation of of um, water that's solid at room temperature. And when it touches any other yeah, liquid water, it transforms it also into Ice-9. So they have to be really careful about it because if it ever ends up touching the oceans or major bodies of water, it'll freeze the entire world. And eventually, that's what happens. Somebody commits suicide by means of Ice-9. And I think the Air Force accidentally blows up the funeral and the body lands mm-hmm. in the ocean and it freezes the entire world. But it's a really cool, Oopsie. I mean, it's, it's got some, like, really cool ideas, but it's sort of about um, the arms race. It's about uh, science outpacing wisdom, um, and I feel like it would be really, uh, I don't want to say it would be a challenge to film, but it would be, like, really grand in scope. Like, you could pull it off, hopefully, with some well, impactful scenes. Vonnegut and, is one of those
0: authors who isn't often filmed. I think back in the 70s, they did Slaughterhouse-Five. Right, to, yeah. Uh, right. Did you, have you seen that movie?
1: No, I've never seen the movie. I was actually going to pick Slaughterhouse-Five, but I knew there was a film floating around, and we had the asterisk about adequately adapted, and I didn't know if the film was good or not, so I I bypassed Slaughterhouse-Five.
0: It's better than you think it would be, but not as good as the book. I guess, you know, sort of the same, same old story in that regard. Yeah, but he's one of those authors who's so, so damn trippy and out there that his work is so difficult to adapt. It's like when they tried to adapt Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy... I mean, it's like you know, in the first page of Hitchhikers, you want you wonder like, how the fuck could they have ever tried to adapt this? Yeah, because it's it's just out. And Vonnegut's the same way. It's the same. Yeah, I'm gonna say it's the same humor, but he definitely has uh, this grandiose sense of humor uh, and irony that a lot of authors don't have that you know Douglas Adams and Vonnegut do. Anyway, I digress. All right, yeah. Are we are we good? Are we ready for the next one, Jeff Ray?
2: Okay, uh, my number two is Casca. Ooh, also known as Casca, Kask- the Eternal Mercenary. C A
0: S C A. For um, those of you who are wondering how that's spelled, because yes. I, I think a lot and, of people um, probably haven't heard of this. Are these books still in print, Jeff? Um, I do believe so. Oh, I'm just wondering because I haven't yeah. seen them, but I, I don't. I don't
2: know. Um, you can at least order them. Okay, they they have they are printing new copies, um, but basically. Uh the the author's Barry Sadler. A lot of people might know him from the the song Green Berets, you know, fighting soldiers from the sky. Yeah. You know. Um but he really was a Green Beret and uh and he also was a military historian and he was trying to figure out a character that he could use to um tell stories from history and have it all be one yeah. character. Yeah. And so he used he used the myth of the centurion. Yeah, um, uh, do you know about that? From the
0: Bible, the the crucifixion of Jesus.
2: Yes, and uh, soldier, you are content with what you with what you are, so that you shall remain until we meet again. So he was cursed by Jesus, and um, yeah, it takes him all over you know the old world, and um, it basically goes from the time of Jesus's death all the way up until like the nineteen eighties. Yeah, and um, yeah, and I was surprised by the amount of actual history that was included in the books. Uh-huh. You know, I I'd, I'd be reading. You know, I was I was reading a Casca book, and then you know, in probably middle school, and then uh, we were doing some world history class. Are you
0: saying it tricked you into learning?
2: Yes, very much.
0: Whoa, um, it's almost like it's almost you know, like that's reading, how you should do I was it. Was reading one of what? It's almost like that's how you should do it. Trick children.
2: Into learning. Agreed. (laughs) All right. Keep going. But anyways, uh, I was reading about, I was reading Casca and they were talking about the Six Day War. And then we went to history class and they mentioned something about the Six Day War in history class. I'm like, holy shit, this is, this is almost exactly what I've been reading in this book. And so many other, you know, times from history were about that. I mean, he was a, he was a a Panzer tank um, captain or whatever they're called in, uh, in World War II. On the on the Eastern Front, and um, just basically, it's they they take a story from history, or true true events from history, uh-huh. and they just kind of add Casca in to be your eyes and ears. Something like twenty one, twenty one of them. I think I think there might be some some modern day kind of you know writers that were okay to write new ones, but the originals are like there's twenty one of them. Okay, and uh, yeah, it goes all over the place from, you know, from Genghis Khan to, uh, kind of a, uh, um, modern day, uh, um, like one of those dictator ethnic cleansing people yeah, in yeah. Uh, Africa. And it just, it just goes all over the place. And it's really fascinating. Cool. And, uh, they, they come up with a lot of cool ways to kind of, uh, torture Casca. Uh, <laughs> there's one where he gets uh, a spear to the chest, falls off the side of a mountain, and ends up uh, falling into a river that goes underground. And they 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 describe him, you know, coming to air pockets and waking up for a few seconds or a few minutes, and then being swept along down the river and drowned over and over and over for like two weeks until he pops out, Damn. you know, the, the other side. <laughs> wow. So uh,
0: yeah, so I've I've often wanted to read those novels. I just have not gotten around to it. But I know you've talked about them quite a bit. And so it sounds fascinating. Yeah. Anyway, my number two is a novel. It's widely regarded as one of the uh, apex of the genre. Uh, it's a very interesting story, especially considering who the author was and what he did. But it's the guy's name was Walter Miller, and the name of his book was called... It's called Canticle for Leibovitz. Uh okay. Canticle was you know, meant to be like a, a hymn a hymnal piece or a religious piece of work. And it's a book that is in three parts in three different time periods. And that's why it's like, it would be really difficult to adapt into a movie. So maybe like a, you know, like a three season TV series, would work better, or maybe like a film trilogy. Although the book's not really, you know, no, no pulling Peter Jacksons and making one book into a trilogy thing. So I, I can see why it hasn't been filmed. Anyway, uh, it does produce some sort of logistical issues for those who would want to adapt it. Way it starts off in the far flung future with a monk who is part of the order, order of Leibowitz. Who is living this? You know, sort of, he's in a monastery, living this sort of monastic aesthetic life, and he he's a part of this order of Leibowitz, who was uh, who founded this monastic order, and it was meant to preserve the knowledge and learning of mankind after a apocalypse. And this monk comes upon these, like, a, sort of like a secret trove out in the wilderness of the American Southwest of Leibowitz's like secret writings or whatever uh anyway so it has a lot to do with like number one dealing with the the preservation of human accomplishment and knowledge and I think I was like what 15 when I first read this book and this book blew my mind apart in the ideas that it presented uh it's sort of funny it's one of those books that was sort of not really very well perceived right when it was written. And then 10 years later, somebody reviewed it again for the, like the New York Times or whatever the hell it was, and it sort of experienced this rebirth. And interestingly enough, Walter Miller never quite got over how the book was initially panned. Uh So even though like, you know, ten, it only took 10 years, but he just never quite got over the fact that uh, nobody could understand it at first, and it took the rest of the world 10 years to catch up to where he was at uh, and realize this classic for what it really was. Anyway, the second part of the novel has to do with, uh, you know, it takes, I think it's like 500 years later, and mankind is slowly patching together pieces of civilization uh, and you know trying to get a more centralized government and then of course the third part of the book is very futuristic in that mankind is preparing to leave the planet and there's this nuclear catastrophe that threatens in other words it has a sort of idea that's presented of cyclical history which I'm not a big fan of but I definitely appreciate it for what it is that mankind is about to destroy itself again. Uh, and sort of barely made it the last time. And these this order of Leibowitz is on a you know they've made their own spaceship and they're going to go blast off to the stars with basically like a library you know essentially for all intents and purposes. Uh, and hopefully that sounds right pretty cool. mankind's wrongs with knowledge. Uh, so yeah, that that for me was big. And it would it would be it would be difficult to make, but God damn it, I still want to see it.
2: That sounds like a good read. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give that
0: a shot. Uh, it's a, it's a great read, and it's one of, it's part of those. Yeah, uh, you know, I had a lot of ideas for what was gonna be on this list, but I almost want to say the golden age of science fiction was what was being written post World War One up to Vietnam, because that's when you had you know these classic masters like Arthur C. Clarke, like this Walter Miller book, like. Um, Robert E. Heinlein was coming out of this period. Isaac Asimov was coming out of this period. You know, these names that we associate with the sci-fi masters were all writing at the exact same time period. And, you know, like Asimov was one of those names, like, well, I would like to see a Foundation kind of series, but, man, that would be difficult. But, you know, I don't have as much affection for that series as I have for some of these other books. Of course, iRobot was sort of clumsily adapted with Will Smith about 10 or 15 years ago. And then... Um, Robert e. Heinlein's book, "The Moon is a Harsh Mit- Mistress." Have you ever heard of this book? No. Oh my God! Also a great book. Werewolves. Uh, "The Moon is a Harsh Mistress." No, it's a science fiction novel. Really, Jimmers? You've never read this? This seems right up your alley. No, I haven't read it. It's like a it's like a libertarian manifesto.
1: Oh, like Ayn Rand? Yeah. <laughs> <I'll>,
0: uh... <laughs> no, no, no! Don't don't put Heinlein and Ayn Rand in the same category. Oh, okay. Uh, he, he's much more of. Uh, pragmatic than about it. He's just doesn't, you know, the, basically the ideas of the moon is a harsh mistress is this moon colony is being extorted. It's basically like Australia was at first. It was a penal colony and, a, you know, low wage workers and, you know, the lowest of the low. And eventually they're able to sort of grab themselves up by the bootstraps and make themselves into something, but they're tired of the earth telling them what to do. And so the revolt. And so the book is about this, uh, rebellion against the powers of earth so they can become their own nation or planet event you know whatever uh, and of course it's very philosophical politically uh and ruminates on very various ideas of libertarianism and things like that which you know i'm not saying it's like rand paul uh, you know Ron Paul, Iron Rand, anything like that. But it definitely gives you a lot of food for thought. And it's being adapted Less by Brian. A
2: sociopathic Bran- version. Yes,
0: it's being adapted by Brian Singer. Apparently his next movie after uh, X-Men Apocalypse is, in fact, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. So keep an eye out for that one. Anyway, let's go ahead and do our, our next our round of honorable, honorable mentions, honorable gentlemen. Mentions. Jimmers, go! Honorable mention! All
1: right, have you guys read Ender's Game? Um, Ender's Game no.
0: Religiously Nope Yeah Yes um,
1: There was a movie adaptation Which I, I haven't seen yet I think it has Harrison Ford But uh, It does And yeah. uh,
0: Aza Butterfield
1: Yeah But I read another book in the series I haven't read the entire thing I haven't read uh, uh, I, 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 like I will I uh,
0: I'm, I'm going to out myself As sort of like a, a resident expert On all things Ender I've read everything
2: Well the Wasn't the first book kind of a short story?
0: No. Well, yeah, it appeared as a sort of a, a version of a short story. Yes, but it was the novel was definitely the big thing. go yeah. ahead jim let's go
1: um I've read um Ender's game, and I've read Speaker for the Dead, the sequel kind great of.
0: book. It's even better than Ender's game,
1: yeah, I think so too. Um I like a lot of the ideas better like it talks about their degrees of and I can't remember the phrase it's foreignness or alienness or something mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. like Ender become, he has like this apotheosis and he becomes like this priest like figure. But it's about like being able to communicate with different species and the buggers, which are actually in the series, people don't know this, they're called formics. Um, yep. They actually the are supposed war. to be like the highest level of dissociation from humans. But it turns out over the course of the book, it's not really true. And another thing that kind of piques my interest, why this would make a great movie is because Orson Scott Card in his infinite wisdom said it was completely unfilmable as a movie but it was inter- I was looking into it, and he said the exact same thing about Ender's Game. And you see how that worked out, anyway. If you guys are interested about the quote, he said, uh, "Speaker for the Dead is unfilmable. It consists of talking heads interrupted by moments it's of true. excruciating and unwatchable violence." Now, I admit <laughs> there's plenty yeah. of unwatchable violence in film, but never attached to my name. I like Speaker for the Dead. I don't want I like violence. I don't want it to be filmed. I can't imagine it being filmed, etc. Um, but yeah, like you say, I thought uh, Ender's game was unfilmable too because like, how much of it is psychological inside of the head of Ender. Well, they,
0: they definitely they messed with a lot of shit in adapting that movie anyway. Yeah, I never saw uh, it. And Ender is way younger than Asa Butterfield's character in that book and there's no sense of the passage of time in the movie either, which I didn't like mm. uh, anyway. I don't think you could adapt it as a movie. I think you could adapt it as... A series, but you'd have to be very careful with how you did it. It it, it definitely would be something interesting to behold. And as far as the rest of the books go, you have like Mm -hmm. Xenocide, which for me, it was like up the first two thirds of the books were fucking awesome. And then the last third completely undid everything that went before it. And I actually read the uh, fourth book in the trilogy, Children of the Mind. Yeah, And it was just like damage was already done. Wasn't um, very good, and there's there's a companion series, uh, the Ender's Shadow, tri- uh, not trilogy. It's actually what five books now, where Bean grows up, and it's sort of like it's more of a direct sequel to Ender's Game, the first book, mm-hmm. than the rest of the Ender series, Ender's Saga, yeah. is. And those books are actually are much more of what you might expect out of Ender's Game, yeah. Sequel, anyway. That's my piece, and it, it, it that would actually work pretty well as a series. The Ender, the Ender's Shadow series. But it's not but that's the thing, it's not as good as Speaker for the Dead. Yeah. Alright, so it's everything not. enders game.
2: Uh alright, I'm with you there. Alright, Jeffrey. My honorable mention. Yep. The Demon Cycle um, series. Um it's uh about this kind of uh, post apocalyptic, like very post apocalyptic, like three hundred some years. Yeah. After shit went down. Um where the people are living in kind of a seventeenth eighteenth century style lifestyle. They but every night, the demons or corlings, as they like to call them, rise up from the ground and uh, try to kill people. Oh, and um, they they basically have they basically when when they first did it, um, there was this kind of history that wasn't believed by anybody. You know, they, they thought it was all superstition of this war against the demons and the, the deliverer united the people and sent the demons back to the core. And, and uh, then, then, you know, thousands, thousands of years later, it's like, Oh yeah, it was a bunch of shit. Okay. And, uh, but the demons, when they, first thing they did when they came back is they burned all the libraries. Oh, well, interesting. to Kind of destroy the knowledge of what are called, what they call wards and there are protective wards that protect you from the demons and there are offensive wards that you know will help you to kill the demons and uh, basically all humanity has left at this point are defensive wards they don't have any any offensive wards and, the, and and the wards are the only thing well not quite the only thing but really the only thing that's effective against the corlings and um so this one character after watching his uh you know he's probably 9 at the time after watching his uh his mother get killed by corlings and his father standing on the porch behind the wards doing nothing um decides to you know to run away and uh go in search of the the lost uh of offensive wards and um he ends up discovering this ancient city in the middle of the desert and he finds, uh... Sounds cool. ...the, uh, the tomb of the Deliverer. Sweet. Yeah, the guy who united everyone and sent the Corlings back to the core. And he finds his spear and he, and he writes down all the, all the offensive warding that's on the spear. And he takes it to his, one of his buddies. And the buddy actually, um, steals him and steals the, the spear from him and leaves him for dead in the middle of the desert. Um... But Arlen's the main character's name. Arlen has written down all of this, all these offensive wards that he found in this book that he had hidden, uh, sewn, you know, special sewn in pocket of his of his pants. Yeah. And so he eventually, with you know, lost in the desert, nothing to protect himself, he eventually starts tattooing the the killing wards and the defensive wards all over his skin. Cool. In fact, the first the first book uh, is called "The Warded Man." Yeah. And so, so he eventually tattoos every, almost every inch of his body. And, uh, and it's, there's, there's a lot more I could go into There's I think it's been like four or five books. I think, Uh, I think
0: that series is going to be, uh, one of the next few that I read. That sounds pretty damn cool. It is pretty damn cool.
2: My honorable mention is
0: a series that I think at least Jeff is familiar with. I don't know if Jimmers, you are or not, but the author is Pierce Anthony. And the series is called The Incarnations of Immortality. It is a seven-part series, and I love the idea of adapting each novel into a single, like, ten-episode season. Uh, And it's sort of similar to the His Dark Materials series by Philip Pullman in that it deals a lot with the uh, relationship between men and their religions but it's not just like christianity or anything the first book is called on a pale horse and it's about a young man who accidentally kills the incarnation of death and is therefore forced to take on the mantle of death himself uh, and sort of live off in this sort of netherland uh, nether land where these other incarnations live and there's a lot of throughout the series there's a lot of intrigue behind what's going on in the you know the politics of this netherland and the interaction between uh there's some the one character in the second book is time, you have fate, you have war, you have mother Earth, and then you have God and the devil, I
2: think of the last two books uh, and of course yeah, so they start with the horsemen of the apocalypse and work their way up in the first book wasn't he about ready to kill himself yes he and was death showed up er, death showed up a little early and he and you know, he ends up, up shooting
0: death instead, yeah. <laughs> because he, he got sloppy or whatever. The person was deaf at that point. <laughs> uh, anyway, there's a lot of ideas to be explored. And I remember reading the 6th and 7th novels. And they were actually published by a different... If you actually go back and look, the first five are put out by Del Rey, which is a major sci-fi fantasy publisher. And the 6th and 7th actually had to be published by a different publisher entirely because Del Rey didn't want to punish, publish them because of their... Uh, I don't want to say like vitriol towards Christianity but they're definitely a critique on the modern state of Christianity within those two books uh, and not very nice about it but then then again they, it's not like anything he said wasn't true but I'm just saying the publishers back then didn't want to publish those last two books uh, but when I had read those two books I remember being like just really put out by it like it was so beyond the pale uh, and I, I remember being offended by it but The more I thought about it, the more I'm like, well, shit, everything that he just wrote in this book is pretty much true. series would probably be a really fun adaptation, especially as it plays out with these uh, various offices of gods.
2: Yeah, on a pale horse was kind of on a pale horse was kind of ruined for me because um, I, I did I chose to do it for a book report. Oh no! And uh, so I had to like read it faster than I would have liked to. Yeah, I like to absorb a book. You know, read it nice and slow and really absorb it. And so yeah, I need to I need to try those the, that series again without the pressure of oh, yeah, the report over my head. They're all enjoyable.
0: All right, so now we're ready for our number ones, guys. Jimmers. I'm all ready right. for a number one. Um, with
1: all the Snowden revelations and everything, I hear people all the time talking about we live in a surveillance state. This is like 1984. Everything's Orwellian. 1984, or, uh, Orwell this, or that. 1984, this, and so on. So I picked for my number one Aldous Huxley's Brave New World because oh, I'm tired. Fuck, yeah, I'm tired of hearing about 1984. 1984 is about government means of controlling the people through surveillance and information yeah. restriction. Brave New World is about not having to control people through consumerism, uh sexuality, uh prevalence Much. of drugs, and so forth. Good call, man. And um Good call. I, like yeah, disco. Well, well like this is it's a, a thing. Disco. Yeah, disco. Like it's just like <laughs> m- when I think about the world like Brave New World is just much, much more relevant and germane. And, like, we're telling them, like, oh, read 1984, read 19. No, you're reading Fuck the wrong fucking books. Yeah, and yeah. Um, uh, this is um, a guy, his name is Neil uh, Postelman. He's a, a culture critic. And then the preface to his book, he wrote this. I stole this from Wikipedia. I said, what Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those yeah. who would deprive us of information. Mm-hmm. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that would be reduced to passivity and egotism. You know, it's this, sort of like th- the problem It's much
0: our, more prescient, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it's so much more applicable to the world today than right. 1984 ever was.
1: Right. Like, we don't ban books for the most part. Like, you can go on Google and find pretty much anything you want. The problem is there are a million irrelevant Yet fun things that you can use Google for also, yes. and so you do that instead. And this is how cat they
2: Videos,
1: win. yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> uh, right, yeah, what's like,
1: the Louis C.K. thing? <sighs> you know what I mean? You carry a, a, a an invention in your pocket that gives you access to the totality of human knowledge, and you watch cat videos.
2: And it sounds like you you take a take a chunk of uh, a Brave New World and a dash of 1984, and then mix in some of the movie network. And you have our current state.
1: Oh, uh, yeah. That's true. Um, yeah. And, and there were, remember we remember, we're talking about the asterisk with these adaptations, like, you know, properly or adequately adapted. Because um, there was a 1980 yeah. TV, made-for-TV adaptation that I oh, never shit. saw. And there was a um, 1999 one on NBC, which I saw. It had... Um, Leonard Nimoy in it.
0: So, that was Jimmer's number one. Let's go ahead and transition over to Jeff Ray, Your number one sci-fi fantasy novel to... I think he
2: has something more to say.
0: Hold on. Yeah, I just wanted to say the part about... We were
1: talking about the asterisk that it has to be um, you know, adequately adapted, adapted. for film. Because yeah. there are a couple of adaptations for uh, Brave New World. They're both made for TV. And I, I'd seen the 1999 one on NBC. I didn't remember though. It actually had Leonard Nimoy I stumbled across, really? this, across this today. Yeah, I didn't remember it either. He was somebody huh, in the no, film. No, I've never even heard of it. <laughs> I think he may have been um, the father of John, um, but I don't remember exactly what he was, but I remember seeing the thing on NBC in the 90s, and it was not particularly impressive. So it would be nice if somebody gave that one some kind of worthwhile treatment.
2: Was Was he taking pictures of BBWs?
0: Uh, yeah. That's <laughs> one, what of does. Help.
2: Okay, Jeffrey, you're number one, Go! My number one is also by uh, Jim Butcher. It's his uh, less known, but still really good um, book series called The Codex Alera. It's set in a world that you find out eventually is kind of a convergent point of uh, kind of wormholes. And there are all these different species that live there that, you know, all have a time and a a kind of an oral tradition of, you know, we came from somewhere else in fact, in fact the the main characters in the book and the main the main society in the book, um the Alarans, have a very Romanesque feel, and you find out that um, basically they went th- the, there was this um there was this uh, um I can't remember exactly how many, but uh an army and all their camp followers got sucked through this kind of wormhole type thing and deposited on this planet. And they had to make their ways and learn to tame um, these kind of um, the the thing that seems to be native. There are two species that seem to be native to the world, and they are um, the these kind of um, spirits. Uh, they have earth spirits and wood spirits and fire and water and air, you know. And this was before um, the Avatar, the, the Last Airbender, came out. So I think this was written a year before that. So okay. kudos to Jim Butcher. Almost everybody, in fact, not just almost everybody, in all the Allerans have a certain amount of control over these furies. They call them furies. These spirits are called furies. Uh, except for the main character, he has no furies whatsoever, and he has to make he has to make it in this world of, uh, you know, basically magic and some of the the fury users are so powerful they're more like gods he has to make it through this world without any without that ability and he he does it by using um his intelligence and his and you know his compassion his his ability to make friends and network and um does it end up that that he really has a secret fury that nobody knows about um it turns out that he is somebody important Okay. And to disguise how old he is, um, his, his, uh, one of his relatives who uh, stunts his growth when he's a baby through use of her water fury
0: gave him lots of coffee. Is there a coffee so fury? Seems,
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he seems too young to have been born from this important person that, oh, you know, okay. basically this important person that died. Um, because, you know, if, if if they knew, if they suspected who he was, you know, lots of people would be trying to kill him. There's a lot of political intrigue and, cool. and a lot of um, of these, you know, really horrible characters that later in the book you're like, oh, they, they, they kind of had a point. You know, it, that's the one thing. Evil people, for the most part, think they're doing the right thing for some reason. The Other native species is like these Eight to ten foot tall, you know, humanoid wolf creature. There's another. There's another uh, species that um, bonds with animals and takes kind of a takes certain attributes from the animals. Like uh, there's a a gargant, which is this kind of giant badger creature, and people who bond with them. You know, they get really freaking yoked and strong. and You know, there's a wolf clan and a, this kind of a giant terror bird clan. And um, and then there's another species in the north called the Iceman, and they're like these kind of uh, kind of whitish yellow ape creatures that can control snow and stuff. And then there's um, um, this other species that um, has has an ability to kind of control travel through the wormholes to different worlds. And they talk about they're called the Vord. And they talk about how they have See The, dis- the board resistance is this futile? No, the board. They're okay. they kind of uh they're kind of an insectoid species that can adapt to almost anything. So they're cockroaches. Kind, kind of borgish. Kind of borgish. Okay. Um Cockroach Borgs, how about that? And uh but they, they travel from world to world through these wormhole networks, um, destroying and conquering everything in their path. And so by the end, all the political infighting and intrigue um, that starts at the beginning ends up meaning nothing at the end, which is kind of surprising.
0: I'm perplexed, but if you said any more, I guess you'd probably give something away. Okay, I guess that'll wrap up your number one. And for my number one, are you ready for this, guys? Either of you ever heard of Neil Stevenson? Maybe. No. Neil Stevenson is one, uh, he was not the first... Necessarily, William Gibson is sort of credited with the uh, cyberpunk phenomenon within science fiction, but Neil Stevenson, Stevenson is the one who t- took it and made it his bitch, and is probably the one who is most associated with that genre. Uh, anyway, cyberpunk
2: or steampunk? Cy- cyber. Okay.
0: Okay. Steampunk. Pfft. That's that's different, man. Uh, anyway, so the book series that I would like to see adapted is actually. A series plus another novel that's sort of loosely related Did either of you guys catch that Mr. Robot series that just premiered last week no I haven't uh, it, it definitely has I don't a Neil, have cable it Sorry. definitely has a yeah. Neil Stevenson vibe to it uh, it's very much like this hacker culture, and he's very much prescient in his presentation of that culture. I mean, Because the one book was written in 1999. The book is called Cryptonomicon. Uh, and it takes place in two different time periods, World, uh, World War II uh, and then the then modern day, I think it was sort of like an alternate reality version. And it's basically like how, talk too much about it because what I'm, I'm saying here is actually pretty big. But the other series that he wrote that's tied to it uh, it's called the Baroque Cycle, which I absolutely love the idea of these old intellectual characters being presented as characters within fiction. And so, in the Baroque Cycle, you have like Isaac Newton as a character. Even in Cryptonomicon, you have uh, Alan Turing as a character, Albert Einstein as a character, because during the that World War II phase me,
2: of that. That book. reminds me of the Secrets of the Immortal Nicholas Flamel series. They okay. did a lot of that, too.
0: Uh, but yeah yeah so like you co-op these characters and have them do the, sort of like this secret historical thing and the Baroque cycle is sort of outside of what Neil Stevenson typically does but if you could find a way to like adapt this these time periods like if you had something going on in the, the Baroque period you had something like that was going on in World War II and something going on in the, you know, modern day that were actually all connected which is basically what where this is going yeah uh, would be pretty damn genius and it's very enlightening it's very relevant and it's presentation of history I love and I think it's going to be my number one recommendation for adaptation although it might also be the most difficult to do of them all Uh, I guess that's it guys so
2: anything else to say about our list men
1: a good list guys nice work
2: yeah it was enjoyable sounds like a lot of interesting I'm gonna Uh, hopefully somebody will actually like uh, pick up some fucking books and read I mean, I'm going to have to go through this and write some of the shit you guys said down. I'm saying. Like, ooh.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'll just actually, Brave New World, man. It's another one of those very effective, transformative books for me. So, yeah, yeah. definitely that one. All right, guys. No, I, I think. Just,
1: we're- uh, yeah, I'm upset that it felt it's not like not in our pulp culture vernacular is what upsets me. Yeah, right. I agree. Jimmer's out.
2: Buchanan out. That was fun. That was fun. Bye, guys. <laughs>